Well, good afternoon, everyone, and a very happy new year. It's remarkable. Here we are now in 2022. I know some of our older members or older folk might roll their eyes at me when I say, I feel like back in 2000, things were like brand new. Like a, new, a car from 2000 was like, oh my goodness, that's, that's, that's incredible. Uh, here we are 22 years later. But with that, one group, you know, that's still really struggling to produce anything new these days is Hollywood. You know, outside of a few outliers here and there, we basically keep getting the same thing, only in different packaging. You know, it all just kind of runs together and becomes incredibly predictable. Most notably, I think of character arcs. Uh, And a character arc, if you're not familiar, is essentially the journey a character follows from start to finish in a story. Uh, But it's the same thing, you know, like a main character has an objective, endures a struggle only to then overcome that struggle, and then finally achieve their goal and realize their destiny, I guess you could say. We see it over and over, no matter what the genre, and part of the reason we see it repeated is because in large part, I think it actually aligns with our own experiences of reality that, you know, we witness sometimes in our own life or in the lives of the people we see around us. And in our text today, 2 Timothy chapter 1, what we get is an introduction to, I guess you could say, the character arc of the Apostle Paul's apprentice. His name is Timothy. And over the course of our study in this book, we'll have the opportunity to really see this arc play out. Now, to be clear, uh, these are not characters in some kind of, you know, Hollywood sketch or novel. Now, the Apostle Paul and Timothy we read about are undoubtedly real. They existed 2,000 years ago. That would be vouched for by any credible Christian or non-Christian scholar out there. But the reason character arcs are so helpful and important is that they give us a window into the mind and into the heart and into the experiences of those we read about or those we see. And so today, and really any time we read the Bible, whether you're in Old Testament narrative or you're looking at Timothy here today, we're looking to do the exact same thing. In order to do so, we need to get a better sense of the author, we need to get a better sense of the audience, and the occasion for the letter. So what's actually going on in the world around this individual? Because as you read the Bible, it's different in just about every single book. So pay close attention here. The author is, of course, the Apostle Paul. Its audience is Timothy. And the occasion is that Paul is suffering in captivity and is about to be put to death. And so these are essentially Paul's last words we have in this book. So if you could please go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you haven't done so already. It's going to be towards the very end of your Bibles. Here we'll begin to set the stage. I'll go ahead and read. In chapter 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. 
For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is what I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me and earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So church, as we look to understand the purpose of this chapter, we'll look to do so in three parts, or I guess you say three points, which is going to be number one, a call to cultivate. It's going to be verses one through seven, a call to cultivate. Number two is a call to contend. That's verse eight through verse 14. And number three, a call to Commit. It's verse 15 through 18. So a call to cultivate, contend, and commit. Look with me again at verse 1 and 2. There we see that, the Paul, that Paul, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, meaning that he's been commissioned by Jesus and has been given unique authority to carry out Jesus' mission. And then what we see next is that the apostle Paul was called by God for the purpose of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. One English theologian by the name of John Stott, he was an uh, exceptional Bible teacher, he once said in a statement, he said, here we have a statement on faith's origin and faith's object. Faith's origin and faith's object in the sense that faith originates by the will of God and finds its hope or end in the promise of eternal life that God holds out to each and every person who would hear and believe. So think with me. Remember, these are Paul's last words. He's about to be executed. And with death staring him square in the face, the first words he puts here do not deal with the doom of death, but with the promise of life. And this promise is what he wants so desperately for Timothy, his beloved child in the faith, to cling on to to the end. Paul then proceeds with his routine pattern of greeting by offering grace and peace before giving thanks to God in verse 3. And here in giving thanks, he uses the words, with a clear conscience. And I think there's a couple reasons he does that. If you're familiar at all with Paul's character arc, you could say, or his background and where he's coming from, 
Paul grew up with deep Jewish roots. Uh, he had just about every religious credential you could ever need or want at the time. And so when Christianity began to spread, he was actually an ardent opponent and persecutor, even hunter of Christians. Some have said that he was the equivalent of like a, like a modern-day ISIS general. He hated Christians because he believed they were perverting the truth rather than declaring it, and so he sought to extinguish them from the face of the earth. Then he was miraculously converted after encountering Jesus one day. You can read all about that later on if you want to uh, in the book of Acts, earlier in the New Testament, in chapters 8 and 9. And really the rest is history. You know, Paul went from being one of the greatest adversaries of Christianity to one of its greatest proponents and evangelists. And so when Paul says he thanks God with a clear conscience on multiple occasions throughout the New Testament, and right here in today's passage, I think he's never forgotten where he's come from. He's never forgotten how the Lord has revealed himself to him and delivered him. In fact, in 1 Timothy, the book right before 2 Timothy, uh, we see these words in chapter 1, starting in verse 12. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul has never forgotten. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel is what continues to fuel him day in and day out. Or as he says in verse 3, night and day. So friends, on this, if you're here today as a Christian, as a, a genuine, born-again follower of Jesus Christ, not just someone who identifies as Christian like you would as American or as some kind of other affiliation. No, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, friends, never forget where you came from. Never forget where you came from. Never forget where he's brought you out of. Allow it to fuel you each day. Not as something you did this one time, this one day back when you were younger, but as something you recommit yourself to night and day. The other reason that Paul is able to say he has a clear conscience is that he's constantly had to endure people always accusing him of things that were simply untrue. People saying, you know, he's only in it for the money, look out for Paul. Or that he's only out to manipulate you and manipulate others for his own selfish gain. And yet Paul was able to endure such false criticism over and over and over again with a clear conscience because he knew in whom he had trusted and he knew the heartbeat of his born-again life, which was to preach the gospel at all costs to everyone he possibly could, that they might be saved. So in either case, Paul is giving thanks to God here with the clearest of consciences because of his faith in Christ and what Christ had done for him. Verse 4 demonstrates the depth of the, the friendship and the brotherhood between Paul and Timothy. 
Paul says he remembers Timothy's tears, likely upon his last departure, the last time he saw him. We've all had those kinds of goodbyes. And Paul can't wait to see his fellow laborer once again soon. But again, don't forget, don't forget as Paul is about to die here. So Paul isn't describing like an earthly reunion, but a heavenly one. And he's confident and joyful as ever in this reality. And then in verse 5, he gives us some insight into their friendship and Paul's mentorship as he recounts Timothy's faith that was first fostered in the life not only of his mother Eunice, but his grandmother also, his grandmother Lois. And so, you know, as Baptists, we talk a lot of, about the Great Commission, thoroughly evangelistic, and the good and godly desire to, to preach the gospel, to spread to all nations, is a marker of the Baptist tradition. But oftentimes, there's a critical component missing when we talk about the Great Commission. And that's that the gospel needs not only to be pre- preached in breadth, you know, geographically, but it also needs to be preached in depth, generationally. It's as Pastor Mark Dever has said. He says it's not just that every nation needs to be reached, but every generation. And how cool it is to see in our text today that this is what's been taking place. Timothy's grandmother's faith, his mother's faith, and now his faith. As he plays such a critical role in the spread of the gospel in the first century. In church, I know that testimonies like Paul's, they often seem to be the most impressive. The oppressor, the addict, the rebellious, you know, the one whose heart is miraculously softened. But no, I actually think this kind of testimony of generational faithfulness is just as impressive, if not more impressive. I'm always amazed at how the Lord continues to keep us year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, despite our constant wandering and faithlessness. So, mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles here today, and so on and so forth, may this be a supreme encouragement to you today. As you teach your children or people in your family and pray for them from the youngest of ages, you're playing a critical role in the great commission of helping the pure, unadulterated gospel reach every generation. I've been, I've been challenged personally myself recently. You know, this Christmas season uh, was really the first when my three-year-old, Joanna, uh, has been able to understand what's going on. And so having grown up myself, having done nightly Advent with my family, you know, I wanted and Carissa wanted to do something similar. So we've been reading a text each night and talking to Joanna about it and then opening one of those little windows in the Advent calendars. I didn't want the cheap ones that are like calendars. I wanted to get like the full thing with compartments. Uh, and so I try to connect, e- connect each text that we're going over any given night with what I put in that window. So each night it's like a panic because I, I like would rummage around the house and uh, Carissa would often make fun of me for how loose the connection was between what I found and what actually went in the window. So for example, one time I was trying to demonstrate how Jesus saves us. And so I went and I got a flash drive you because know, like saves. And uh, if anyone's confused looking at me, this is exactly how Joanna was looking at me because what does a three-year-old know about a flash drive, but in any case, I've been convicted about the regularity and depth around our own family worship, and Advent has highlighted that. And so recently, I read an excellent book by Don Whitney on it, and in it, Whitney 
describes the strong connection between a lack of regular family worship in the household with children who end up walking away from or deconstructing their faith as they get older at a later age. In one instance, he describes how he once taught a class of 115 seminary students where he asked how many of them grew up in households where family worship was regularly practiced. And to his surprise, at a conservative, Bible-believing seminary, which attracts some of the most devoted, gospel-zealous Christians on the planet, only seven people raised their hands. And then when he followed it up and said, how many of you have ever seen it in a house? You got another eight more. So 15 out of 115. And so he says, this is where today's Reformation must begin. He sums it up by saying, consistent, father-led family worship is one of the best, steadiest, and most measurable ways to bring up children in the Lord's discipline and instruction. And so parents, if you're not doing it already, I'd strongly encourage you to try it and commit to it, to help cultivate the faith of your children, and who knows, even your children's children, and their children's children's children. Maybe you don't know where to start, or you're ashamed of starting now. Maybe your kids are a little bit older. I'd say don't let that deter you. Whitney offers just a couple of suggestions. He says there's three things you can do each evening that will take no longer than five minutes, and that is to read, pray, and sing. Read a little bit of scripture, pray about it as a family, and then sing just like one verse of a hymn together. Or you can maybe try memorizing scripture passages together. It may seem a little aimless or awkward at times. It may seem like night after night, nothing substantive or anything important is actually being accomplished. But the Lord promises to work through his word, church. And countless faithful parents have been able to attest to the long-term fruit from such times. And so whether you're a parent here today, you're an aunt or an uncle, you, you might be a parent someday, you want to be a parent, you're a grandparent, like I've said, so on and so forth. Whitney says, isn't this what you really want to do? What better way to speak the gospel into the lives of your children every single day? What better way to provide your children with an ongoing opportunity to ask about the things of God in a safe and comfortable context? What better way to bring your family together on a meaningful and regular basis? You know, isn't this the kind of legacy you want to leave with your family? Isn't this what you really want? And don't worry, the less you or your family really wants it, he says, that's an indicator the more and more you really need it. I'd love to talk with you after service if any of you are interested or have any questions, but let's move on. We must ask, though, why is Paul doing this? Why is he putting this here? Why start out his letter by recounting Timothy's upbringing and spiritual background? And it's because of what he goes on to say in verse 6. It's what he wants from Timothy in verse 6. He says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul wants Timothy to be very intentional about, about cultivating his faith, which is to grow or develop by careful attention and training and study. And in the face of Paul's captivity and suffering and unpopularity that was inevitably and soon coming for Timothy, he wants Timothy to gear up and dig deeper, like a, a soldier preparing for battle or like an athlete preparing for the Olympics, or like a student preparing for a massive final exam. 
He's saying, since I know you have faith, don't let it rest. Stay alert. Be on your guard. You see, church, we're never stagnant in our faith. We're either growing in faith or we're shrinking in it. There's no neutral, no matter how much this world or others might attempt to deceive you into thinking so. Some of you right now are really struggling. You're really struggling to to fight the fight for faith for a number of reasons. It could be because you're going through a really hard time right now and a lot in life, and it just doesn't really seem fair. It could be because you're consciously or or subconsciously finding the things of this world more and more appealing. That's how it works. Or it could be because you're not prioritizing your life in the local church. Or it could be that you're really, really struggling with sin right now. And you're not really confessing it. And you're not telling anybody. And you're not really even sure you want to repent or you want to turn from it. Regardless Friends, regardless of what it is, you know your faith, the flame of your faith, is dwindling. And so, what are you called to do? Even for the Christian who feels they're doing really well right now, what are you called to do? Fan it. Fan into flame the gift of God that has been given to you. Confess your sin. Forsake your sin. Call out what's competing for your affections and attention. Link arms with fellow brothers and sisters around you who God has sovereignly placed in your life to help you fight the fight of faith. Because it's as pastor and theologian John Piper said, he said the battle for obedience is absolutely necessary for our final salvation. You say, wait a second, I thought grace is by, uh, 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 faith is by grace. He says the battle for obedience is absolutely necessary for our final salvation because the battle for obedience is the fight of faith. And the fight of faith is the fight against unbelief. Faith delivers from hell, and faith that delivers from hell delivers from sin also. Friends, cultivate your faith. Commit to intentionally growing in it. Throw fuel on the fire in the form of a new commitment to prayer or to, to reading the Bible. You can you know, you check out Bible reading plans or to discipling relationships and early morning prayer in the likes. You know, not that those things will save you, but as we're called to fan the, the flame of faith in our lives, you know what a flame does? It gives warmth to areas that are cold. It brings light into the darkness. You know, it fights off flies and and beasts that would seek to harm and kill. And it burns bright for the world to see. You see, just as there's no limit to how great a fire can get, there's really no limit on how much you can grow in faith this side of heaven. So, you know, you might be here today like, I'm great, I'm doing all these things, I'm ticking all my devotional boxes and discipleship boxes and all these kinds of things. Just even, for example, in taking the Bible and reading the Bible, you could literally study one book of the Bible, no matter how long, no matter how short, for the rest of your life, every single day, and still just be scratching the surface of it. We serve a God who is so great and so transcendent, we'll never be able to reach the ends of our knowledge of him and therefore our love for him, church. So may we fight 
the battle for obedience and fight the fight of faith because, friends, God has given us a spirit, and not just any spirit, but his spirit. Not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Power in the face of fear and unbelief. Love in the face of persecution and injustice. And self-control in the face of distraction and temptation. So number one, a call to cultivate. Number two, a call to contend. Verses 7 through 14. And here, Paul begins pleading with Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel. So the, the, the true gospel. Not this kind of palatable, watered-down, cultural version of the gospel. No, this is the gospel that brings suffering, it says in verse 8. Not riches and fame and health and wealth this side of heaven. It's the gospel that calls you into holiness, it says in verse 9. That says, actually, you can't just go and set your own rules for your life. You can't just look like the rest of the world. You can't just call yourself a Christian and not live like it and try to bear Christ's name but look nothing like him and want absolutely nothing of him. And not that your holiness is like a, uh, the basis of merit before a holy God. It's not. It's not that your good works make up some kind of like spiritual resume that gives you a pretty good shot at salvation. Now, instead, your good works are a result of God's grace in salvation. Because it says, the rest of verse 9 says, it says, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And so right here, this truth is one of the clearest expressions of the doctrine of election that you can find in the New Testament. You know, you really can't get around it here. It really doesn't get any more clear or explicit. God, from before creation, from before the ages began, had purposes of grace for those who would be his people. And notice what Paul is doing here and why he drops this in here. This is not to prove some kind of theological point. Right? It's to encourage Timothy and to bolster his faith and to likewise do the same for us. Friends, for those here today who are genuine Christians, God in his infinite wisdom and goodness and sovereignty saw fit to lavish his grace upon you before you even existed, before your parents existed, before this universe existed. John Stott says if you were to trace the river of salvation to its source, we must look right back beyond time so if you're struggling today to find hope, if you're struggling to find rest, if you're struggling to find a motivation to fight sin, throw yourself into the everlasting arms of the God who created you to be with him forever, who calls you his glorious inheritance, his precious son and daughter, who manifested himself and has abolished death, it says, and brought to light life and immortality. You'll see there in verse 10. Immortality in the sense that God promises that for those who believe in Christ, you'll never, ever taste death. You may taste physical death, death which separates you from your present body, but you'll never, ever taste spiritual death which separates you from the living God. But here's the thing. 
the world hates this gospel because it's naturally exclusive and it tells the truth about us. We once hated this gospel. I once can tell you, I absolutely hated this gospel. It tells the truth about us as sinners in needs of God's grace. It calls on us to turn away from our sins and put our hope and trust in the one true God on His terms according to His word, not ours. And in a world that is so grossly narcissistic, this is not good news. This is horrible news. And it's news that demands to be rejected and therefore silenced. And this is why the Apostle Paul is suffering in verse 11 and 12. Because he was commissioned by God to preach such news. So, okay, let me get this straight. You're telling me the world hates truth. And so what does God call Paul to do? Does he say, create really good marketing campaigns that attract people and are super aesthetic, do the exact same tactics that the world seems to do, that seems to work, so that we can get them into the church, into like community groups, and then kind of sideswipe them with the gospel, get them to trick them into saying a prayer or something like that. No, God says, preach the truth. So wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. The world hates the truth, therefore preach the truth? Why? And it's because it's the only gospel that saves. It's the only thing that tells the truth about God, the truth about who we are. It's the only truth that tells us you know, that we are actually pretty messed up. And he had to come in to his creation to, to do what we could never do, what we would never do, by living perfectly and offering his perfect life as a substitute for our crooked and fallen life. And it's the only truth that holds out hope for the sinner, for all who would turn from their sins and put their hope in Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. You know that resume I talked about? Your resume that you might think, your spiritual resume that looks really good, is actually if you were to put every deed on there you've ever committed in rebellion against God, Jesus came and exchanged his resume for yours. His perfect life and full obedience to the Father for yours. That's what happened on the cross. If you've not done so today, and you hear his voice in your heart, I'd, I'd, I'd ask, would you resolve to do so today? Let the first day of 2022 be the day when you said, I'm going to commit myself to following the Lord Jesus for the rest of my life. You know, this is why Paul can write that he's not truly uh, ashamed of the suffering and the abandonment, and the unpopularity of his message. Because no matter how much people may hate him for it, no matter how much people may hate you for it, and speak evil of you, and, and you know, lie about you, and tear you down, you're, you're going to be able to have a clear conscience knowing in whom you've believed, and confident that, like we read earlier, he's able to save even the foremost of sinners. So even as people hate you, you can love them. And this is the truth, you know, he's urging Timothy to unashamedly embrace in this passage, especially in verse 13 where he urges him. He says, you know, follow the pattern of sound words. Timothy's heard and believed. But this doesn't quite capture all of what Paul is instructing Timothy to do in this section. Or in other words, you know, the purpose here is not just to not be ashamed for the sake of not being ashamed. There's something bigger at stake. There's a bigger play here. And I actually think it's the main point of all of chapter 1. You'll find it there at the end of verse 14. 
with the imperative phrase that says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You see, Paul understands that if the gospel is going to reach every nation and every generation, it was going to need to be guarded at all costs. Followers of Christ would need to contend for their faith because there have always been, in every place and in every age, those who would seek to twist the words of Christ, to to alter them, to replace them, to discredit or water down the words of God, really to the point where rather than being made in God's image, they're creating God in their image. That's how Satan has always sought to destroy people and ruin people's faith. Not through outright denying the message, but just enough so that it's not real anymore. And then get you to buy into it. This is why you'll find mentions of false prophets and teachers in just about every New Testament book. Because the truth is always under attack. And you and I, just like Timothy, have a responsibility as Christians to contend for it. And yet here's the thing. You'll notice not only in the New Testament but in your own life experience as a Christian, that the most dangerous attacks of Christianity come from not outside the church, but actually from inside. In every generation, throughout history, you have those who would, through their own selfish motives or self-righteous illusions, seek to alter the good deposit that has been entrusted and delivered to God's people. And this is why in our membership classes, for example, maybe you're new to membership, you're not really sure what it is, this is why we make it a point to talk about not just the what of the gospel, so, so you know, the content and the components of the gospel, but also the who of the gospel, meaning doing the best we possibly can to the best of our ability, recognizing we're not going to be perfect, but to the best of our ability to hear and affirm people's professions of faith so that New Covenant Baptist Church might be composed, get this, of people who are actually of the New Covenant. Or as some reformers put it, so that the spiritual house of God might be composed and built of living stones. Or so that Christ's living body might be made up of living members. Friends, this is why we believe that meaningful church membership is so important and biblical. It's not for the sake of exclusivity in and of itself and not to create just some kind of club or affiliation to belong to. Right? But it's so that we might, to the best of our ability, obey Christ in his word by having the visible kingdom of God in the here and now represent his eternal kingdom. And this is why we likewise have the responsibility to conduct things, unfortunately, like church discipline. That we might hold one another accountable to God's commandments in living lives that, as the Bible puts it, are worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Or another way of putting it would be worthy of the gospel that he's called us to. It's so that we might seek to be pure and holy as he is holy. It's so that we might be able to lovingly call the sinner to repentance and say, actually, you're heading into really dangerous waters. And we can't celebrate with you and follow you there, no matter how much we love you. God tells us in his word that he disciplines the one he loves, that they might enter into his presence forever. You see, guarding the what and the who of the gospel has always been, like I said, a primary responsibility of the church and its many members, not just in church history, in the New Testament. So for anyone out there you might hear, and I know they're out there, in today's individualistic self-righteous, recklessly modern day Christianity. I mean, it says, man, 
you just care way too much about doctrine. You're just some stiff. You're just some heresy hunter who is obsessed with the Bible. You're just some kind of legalist who takes stuff way too seriously. I would say, friend, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because what you're going after, what you're attacking, is the very priority, the very institution, the very set of tools that Christ laid out for his church. And sure, there are certainly cases, you know, where we'll find people who use the Bible and use doctrine to their own personal gain. It's horrible. Only to seek to leverage it, to exploit others, and then use and abuse them. Absolutely. And we must call them out and put in, seek to put an end to their ends and their ways. But there are also going to, people, going to be people who are always wrong on your left and on your right. And the key to being in the right place is not finding the right place, this many people on my left, this many people on my right. No, the right place is to centralize yourself and orient yourself around the Bible. And so to denounce the scriptures in favor of your own words and wisdom is at best reckless and at worst wicked. It's it's self-obsessed. It's egregiously misleading. And as far as the, the what of the gospel goes, you'll have no idea what you'll hear these days, unfortunately. What is the gospel? You'll hear everything from the gospel is love God and love others. Well, actually, no, that's, that's not the gospel. Love God, love others is not the gospel. That's the law. What did Jesus say? The whole law, the greatest commandment, is summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor. You know, or you might hear something like, you know, believe in the gospel and everything will go right in your life. Everything in this life will fall into place. You'll be healthy. You'll be wealthy. If you'd only just believe and have enough faith. Well, the Apostle Paul in this passage would say otherwise as he sits there and writes and counts the links in his chains that are attached to his body. Others might say the gospel is, it, it, it means that you can have purpose in your life. It gives you meaning. The gospel is that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. And while these things are great and very important, and I am not dogging on them whatsoever, that's not the gospel, friends. None of these are the what of the gospel because none of them actually capture what's at the heart of the good news. It's as as R.C. Sproul put it, the gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings. It doesn't sugarcoat it. And friends, the most serious problem we have as human beings is that we are at enmity with God. Our connection and our relation to him has been broken as a result of the fall, as a result of our sin. And as a result, the Bible says that we are strangers to him. We are without him. We are without hope. Which, if that were the end of the story, what a downer that would be, right? And for everyone here today, apart from God, that would be the end of the story. That would be it. Imagine if that was it. You drive out here on New Year's and someone doesn't pay attention and hits you with their car and that's it. There is no hope beyond that. That's what life would be like without God. But it's as I said previously. 
the Bible tells us that God loved His people so much, He was willing to incarnate Himself into His creation to then be rejected by that creation that He might once again reconcile them to Himself. And this reconciliation is available to all who would forsake their sins and place their trust and lives in Christ Jesus. Again, friends, do this today. And you know what? One of the major benefits of doing so for the Christian this side of heaven is that you receive his spirit, which if you notice, we kind of skipped over in verse 14. His spirit right there says, by the Holy Spirit, which dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So brothers and sisters, in other words, this is saying that since you have this spirit, since you have his spirit, you have what it takes to guard the gospel and fend it off from falsehood and lies that others will try to sell you. And what an encouragement that is. We're instructed to guard the who and the what of the gospel, yet we've been told we've been given the Holy Spirit to help and aid us in doing so. Which if you look at the second half of verse 12, which we also breeze past, it's the very means God has instituted to guard to the end. To guard the good deposit to the end. So you know, if anyone says, uh, you know, God is going to guard it. Look at, look, at verse, uh, look at verse 12 there. God is going to guard it. God's going to contend for it. I don't really have to do anything. Well, the Bible recalibrates us at that point to verse 14 by telling us that his spirit within us is his means for preserving the truth until it reaches the nations and generations. And, you know, back to the idea of having a purpose or a meaning in life, it's the, it's the same, it has always been the same for Christians since Christ's ascension, which is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to the end of time for the sake and glory of his name and glorious grace. And church, this is one of the key ways we're able to contend for the faith and seeing that come to final, uh, final fruition. And so we've been called to cultivate our faith. We've been called to contend for our faith. Finally, number three, May we commit to our faith, friends. A call to commit. Here we have uh, you know, front row seats in verse 15 to the unpopularity of the true gospel. All of Paul's, you know, you'd think Paul is this, uh, a, big, a big deal, right? The apostle of Jesus Christ has written so many letters in the New Testament, yet all of his companions, all of his workers have retreated into the corners of the world and abandoned him. And I don't think it's because they rejected their belief in God, suddenly, or because they now rejected the idea of the Christian faith and the tenets of the Christian faith, I guess you could say. Now, it was Paul's chains they rejected. It was his suffering they wanted nothing to do with. It was his unpopularity. We'll see more of the specifics in chapter 4, but we even have two examples right here in Phygelus and Hermogenes. They wanted it all. They wanted glory now, glory later. They wanted to taste the pleasures of this world, the, us, the, 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 the lust of the eyes and of the flesh, but not enough to turn their back on God, at least not in their minds. You ever hear the saying, you can't have the best of both worlds? Well, those who abandoned Paul so arrogantly said, yes, we can, and how dare you to question me? You know the saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. These people said, watch me. Don't tell me what to do. They're willing to affiliate with their quote-unquote faith, 
They're willing to give lip service to it and to you know, include it in their Instagram bios and in their social media statuses. But then when it really comes down to it, they weren't willing to actually commit to it. At least not to the gospel Paul preached. They knew better in their own minds. And so they moved on. And in doing so, they moved on from the truth that would actually save them from their sins. But standing in stark contrast to Phagellus and Hermogenes was a man named Anisiphorus. You see in verse 16 and 17, and I know these names are a little strange. Uh, nobody's really naming their kids these today. These are ancient Greek names. But you see in verse 16, Anisiphorus sought out Paul in his chains to care and to comfort him. In effect, Anisiphorus was saying, not just with his words, but with his life, that he was absolutely committed to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The suffering servant who endured hardship, abandonment, and unpopularity now, and unending glory later. Temporal suffering in this life, and eternal satisfaction later. You see, this is an illustration. It's a visual aid of what it truly looks like to commit to Christ this side of heaven. You think Anisiphorus wanted to suffer? I mean, seriously. Do you think maybe he ever saw people uh, 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 like Phagellus and Hermogenes and thought, hmm, they say they're just as Christian as Paul. They're wearing their favorite brands. They're driving their favorite cars. They have all of these followers. And people seem to really approve of them. They must be right. I should, I should follow them. But no, Anisiphorus has the Holy Spirit inside of him, bearing witness with his spirit that all of that is just a religious front for worldliness. A hollow, comforting tactic to pat yourself on the back at night as you lay your head down and rise to continue to put your preferences and your wisdom and your kingdom above God's. It's nothing but fool's gold. You see, Anisiphorus was not ashamed of Paul, was therefore not ashamed of Christ. And when the time came, he was ready to lay down his life, uh, ready to put it on the line for the sake of the truth, because he knew, again, it's the only truth that saves. We may buy into the cultural lie that you have your truth, and I have mine. And that may be a great source of comfort for you. But the reality is that your truth And my truth, they don't really matter. Your truth and my truth will drop us straight into our eternal graves. Because it's not your truth or my truth that matters. It's God's truth. If you think of the fight for the truth of God's word as like a house that's being constantly assaulted by those on the outside and those on the inside of it, trying to blow it up and set it on fire and do whatever it takes to destroy it and see it come tumbling down. My prayer for my own life and for your life is that we will be found there to the end, guarding, holding up his house, holding up his truth at all costs, no matter what happens to us. May this be our resolve this year in 2022, church, because the precious promise we have is right there. You'll see it in verse 18. It's that if we do that, if we commit ourselves to him, we'll find mercy from the Lord our God on the final day. And what a joyous and glorious thought to behold. There was this horrible incident and tragedy 
that happened a little more than 10 years ago off the coast of Florida in the Gulf of Mexico. There was a fishing boat carrying four men. Two of them were NFL players. It actually flipped and capsized in the ocean due to poor anchoring. And they were so far out that you know, nobody could find them. So here you have four men stranded at sea, hanging on to the sides of a capsized boat, hour after hour after hour, with cold fronts coming and waves crashing on them and temperatures lowering night and day. And as they're hanging on the boats, you know, the boat was submerged for 10, 15, 20 seconds at a time. They just have to hold their breath. Imagine doing that for hours on hours on end. And your only hope as you look around the whole ocean is somebody, somebody, please find me. As the next day dawned and uh, hypothermia began to set in, these men began to feel the effects. And if, if you're not aware, hypothermia not only messes with your body, but it also messes with your mind as well. And tragically, what ended up happening was over the next 24 hours of being by their lonesome and not being found, one of the men gave up hope. He said, I can't do this anymore. And he unzipped his life jacket and was never seen again. Another man thought he saw a light and began to swim off to it, only to never to be seen again. And so as the two men remaining there hung on for dear life, now into the third day, one said to the other, you know, I'm, I'm going to hang on as much as I can, but I don't think I'm going to make it another night. And sadly, that's exactly what happened. Now there's just this one man on his own, with nobody to talk to, nobody to support him, who clung on to the boat with everything he had, refusing to let go of it at all costs in hopes of deliverance. And you know what? On the third day, he was found alive, still holding on, and was brought to safety. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you and for me is that we would live lives that cling on to God's truth with everything that we have, that cling on to the gospel at all costs, even if it means we're the last ones to do so. Even if it means we're called crazy or unintelligent or, or bigoted according to this world. Even if it means as the hypothermia of worldliness and sin seek to poison our bodies and minds, tempting us to let go. That we would truly, by God's grace and the power of his Holy Spirit, together as a church in 2022, respond to the call to cultivate our faith, to contend for it, and to commit to it for the whole of our lives with everything we've got. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the grace that you lavish on us day after day. And for the grace you continually hold out to sinners. And we thank you that your promise stands for even the foremost of sinners. That you are a God who loves mercy. Who kindness leads us to repentance. God of all glory and truth and worthy of all honor. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.